Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with a very special guest, Ryan Caldbeck, founder and CEO of Circle Up. Ryan, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Ryan, what is Circle Up and what was the inspiration to start it? So Circle Up is an investment platform powered by technology. Um, the inspiration uh, came from my time in private equity. I used to uh, work in consumer-focused private equity. So when I say consumer, I mean, in this case, CPG, food, beverage, personal care, pet products. And what I saw is that in that industry, there are hundreds of investors that love the industry. Almost all of them will only invest after a company hits 10 or $15 million in revenue. It's this very bizarre dislocation of the market where investors below that size range really struggle to find companies efficiently. There is no Silicon Valley for consumer. Um, the companies are just as likely to be in Texas or Florida as they are California or New York. And there's no infrastructure like Y Combinator or TechCrunch to help investors and companies connect efficiently. So it's an industry that's three times the size of tech, despite what people in this city probably think. The returns historically have been phenomenal with about half the volatility in the returns uh, that tech has. But the problem is the cost to find them is just, again, too high. So what happens is investors got to get on a plane, fly to a trade show, learn about a company, fly to another city to go visit that company. That math makes sense if you're writing a $25 million check. It makes no sense at all if you're writing a $2 million check. Yeah. And why do VCs misunderstand consumers so much? They say it's too capital intensive. They say there aren't big winners. Yeah. So, Why? so we could talk for hours about this topic. <laughs> um, I, I think it depends on, on who we're talking about. I think some VCs look at it in a much more sophisticated way than others. There's a couple different reasons. One, it's an industry that they are a lot less familiar with because in part of that inefficiency that I just talked about. So every day they're coming across a dozen tech entrepreneurs reading about two dozen more. Um, listening to podcasts like yours about tech entrepreneurs, et cetera. But they come into contact with consumer because they open their fridge at home and they see products. That's it. And it's really hard for them to kind of wrap their head around an industry where they don't have as much kind of day-to-day exposure. They're not talking about it with any other investors that invest in that space. So I think knowledge is, is one. I think another one is that historically, investors tend to think that their tastes matter. If I like this chocolate bar, or I like these golf clubs, everyone else must like them. And that often leads to a confusion about why that company is or is not successful. Why is that other company successful if I don't like their product? They tend to not do that with technology products nearly as much. And, and so that kind of kind of cognitive dissonance around uh, the product itself and your user tastes, I think, comes into play. Um, but mostly it's around just information and being able to kind of interact with the uh, the entrepreneurs and and learn about the industry that leads them to not understand it. And your mission of uh, quantitative investing, did you sort of happen to come into that mission or wh- where did that come from? Did you, was the consumer things more opportunistic or say, oh, this is part of a, my Babe Ruth plan? Yeah. <laughs> I definitely don't want to say everything was, was perfectly thought out. That's, that's for sure. Our mission is to help entrepreneurs to thrive by giving them the capital and resources that they need. We saw a hole in the market, which was in consumer, again, uh, just dramatic inefficiency for entrepreneurs to be able to get the capital that they need. So our original thesis was to use technology to lower the cost to participate in the market 
thus expanding participation in the market. We tried to do that through a marketplace approach. Um, so for the first several years of Circle Life's history, we had a marketplace where we would list companies and then investors, typically family offices, really, really small funds would go and invest into those companies. What we discovered is that the way we were using technology to find and evaluate the companies was not being appreciated by the investors. Investors always think they're the smartest people in the room. Um, they tend to think that they're smarter than the technology. And so we would show them data on a given set of companies and their human heuristics would just take over. Well, you know, this, this uh, ice cream doesn't taste that good. Or, well, I talked to this entrepreneur and I just not sure she's got what it takes. Um, those companies would end up being successful and we're sitting on the other end, just kind of grabbing our hair, just really struggling to understand what to do. We felt like we had a technology, and I can go into that, that was doing a great job of identifying and evaluating companies. And we didn't think that was being, we were being paid for that. And talk more about the technology that you, that you built and what you learned over time in terms of what data is important, what data is not important. Yeah. So it, it started, um, let me back up and, and explain where it started because it definitely was not some master plan to build this technology. The original idea for the technology came again from, from my experience as an investor. And I don't know, Eric, if you've had a similar experience, but I would get, in the case of private equity, and maybe in your case, in the case of private equity, would be books from investment makers. And, and so in your case, maybe it's emails from entrepreneurs or whatever, but our decks from the entrepreneur themselves. And I'd kind of skip to one page, to be frank with you, and, and look at, you know, okay, the company is declining and has really low gross margins. I don't need to spend any more time on this business. And it's kind of embarrassing to admit that that's the level of intellectual rigor that went into 90% of the deals, but that's the honest truth. And when we started Circle Up, we had a, a, a thesis that, you could kind of replicate that part of the work uh, with a computer. It just was born out of my frustration that, gosh, like it doesn't take a lot of intelligence to see that the company is declining and has bad margins. So we built an algorithm five years ago that evaluated companies when they would apply to Circle Up. And what we found is that when they would apply, they'd give us their private financials, but then we'd also pull in some other information that was publicly available. We ran that for about nine months and we discovered that eight of the 10 data sets that were most predictive of whether or not we wanted to work with a company were pieces of information we didn't need to ask for. And that was a really big aha for us. I figured as an investor, all of the critical information would be on the income statement, maybe balance sheet. And it wasn't. Um, there were other pieces of information related to distribution, product uniqueness, brand, et cetera, that are actually really predictive of, of success. And so we began leaning into that technology, um, not to evaluate them when they came to us, but to source them. That was the big aha. Um, can we use this technology to source companies? That wasn't something that I had planned when we started Circle Up. It was something that just came out of the data after, after building this thing. So that we called Helio, the technology, a collection of algorithms and data sets, which go out in the world, find, and then evaluate companies. And as we have built that over the years, we've discovered that the data that's available in this industry is incredibly robust, but also really hard to pull together. We've also discovered that, uh, as I mentioned before, investors tend to be really skeptical that data can enhance their decision-making process, which is which has been frustrating. Um, that's what led us to kind of pivot away from the marketplace and lean into a fund model. Yeah. You know, people have been talking about quant investing in private markets for, for a long time. There's sort of this great v critique of VC that uh, everything venture capitalists advise their CEOs, you know, 
have clear org structure, build you know tech moats. They don't do themselves. Why not? Why hasn't it worked? And uh, what's what's different this time, so to speak? Well, so it hasn't worked. I think for for a few reasons. First of all, let's hone in on kind of what we mean on by quant or systematic investing in the private markets. So what I mean is kind of a, a rules-based approach to finding and evaluating companies. There will still be manual process. So someone literally needs to pick up the phone and call the entrepreneur or to sign docs. It's it's a bit different than public markets where you can effectively press a button and, and trade a stock. And in the private markets, I don't think this works in, in every industry. Um, we're trying to build it in consumer. In what you guys do as an example, I really struggle to see if it's possible or to see that it is possible. So why? Well, one, I'm not sure that there's enough data in tech. When you guys are looking at a business, and you can tell me if you disagree, Eric, but when you guys are looking at a business, oftentimes there was not a prior example of success of that company. When Uber hit, there wasn't five other Ubers, let alone 50 or 500, enough for a data scientist to kind of look at kind of common trends um, for that particular business model, that particular uh, industry. When a food company hits, there's a thousand other food companies that have hit. It, you know, it, it's it's dramatic how many other examples there are of success in that industry. There's not a, there's not as much data, um, and the business models are wildly different from each other. You guys will look at you know perhaps a marketplace, a cryptocurrency, a, a securities business. Wildly different business models in consumer. Whether it's shampoo, dog food, or water, the margins are different. But you make a product and you sell it. Even a lot of people around here will will point to D to C, a direct to consumer rather. That's just a different channel. The basic business model is still the same. You're making a product and you're selling it. You're not giving away the product for five years and then hoping to monetize it later on. You're not building a SaaS business in the case of consumer. So those are two big reasons, the lack of data and the, the you know, kind of very wide, the wide ranging examples of, of business models that make it, I think, really hard to build this in, in some industries. Yeah. We've found that we've been able to use software to help our companies once we've invested in them, you know, identify the right investor, the right customer, or even find, uh, you know, engineers that are, you know, get, get, leave their job using, you know, when they update their LinkedIn profile, et cetera, but not so much on, on selection. And I think the difference there, sorry, is that now you have access to their data, exactly. right? So when you're thinking about finding the companies, right. you know, what data is available? So if it's 2012, 2013, and you're looking at Slack from afar, what can you really see about the company Slack? In the case of consumer, we can see who all of their customers are, literally, how much the customers pay for it, what the end users think of the product, and if we're tracking it, how all those things change every single month. It's outrageously valuable data, but in tech, there, there isn't really an equivalent. Ten years from now, do you think my job will look very similar to what it what it does today, except consumer, <laughs> or do you think that other categories will be will become like what you're trying to do for consumer? Well, so there there's a um, probably a, an interesting discussion to be had around how venture evolves, but with regards to systematic investing specifically, I'm not convinced it works. I really, I'm, I'm not. I mean, so there are some examples of some tech VC firms that are systematically evaluating companies after they come to them. Some kind of basically look at four or five pieces of data. And if you kind of scratch the surface a little bit further, the answer, 80% of the decision is made off of who else is investing into the round. You know, if a top tier investor, and, and so one went so far to say is that the only thing that Matt told me, um, the only thing that matters is who the third most important investor in the round is. Meaning if the third most important investor is a tier one investor, you got to invest. And that's fine. That's what I'm, correlation ventures are doing to some extent. Yeah. And, and so there's nothing against that approach, but I think it's, it's what, here's what you have to believe. First of all, you have to believe that 
your colleagues are all making good decisions. Well, I think that there are some fantastic VC firms out there. I think if you look at the industry average, you know, it's not not amazing. But two, you have to believe you can get into those rounds, right? So if 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 there are three phenomenal investors in it, why are they letting that fourth one in? What value does that fourth investor bring to the table? And I'm pretty skeptical of that. I think that there will be um, a home for systematic uh, tech VC firms that looks pretty similar to what it does today, where there are some LPs that say, yeah, if you can get into, you know, pick your top tier fund, you can get into those deals, we'll back you. I struggle to believe that that's going to become a big part of the ecosystem, though. What's your uh, perhaps a non-obvious or most contrarian take about how venture is going to evolve? I've got a thesis that over the next 10 years, the the large brands will decay and, and not go stronger. Um, so that it, I think that there'll be greater fragmentation in venture. The large brands, benchmarks, Goya is of the world. Yeah. I mean, we're seeing that with, with, you know, some funds already, to be frank. Um, partners leaving, uh, I mean, a major fund. Just like the NBA free agency out there. Yeah, it does. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Please, let's get Kevin Durant. <laughs> right. And, and so you think about, well, why would that be? Well, when you're a, you know, 30 something VC, you've got, couple years track record, you've got LPs coming to you and saying, hey, I'll back you. What's the reason to stay? Well, you stay because you're getting mentorship, because you're getting great economics, whatever. A lot of these funds, they have 50, 60-year-old partners who are kind of working three days a week, kicking around and trying to gobble the economics. Um, And I think that that's – I I don't see that being successful over the long term. I think an exception you just mentioned – benchmark because they split the economics effectively um, evenly, right? And because the people that have been there the longest, you know, Bill Gurley, Peter Fenton are still pretty damn good. You look at some of the other funds, people that have been there the longest, I haven't seen them lead a deal in five years, seven years. They're just kind of, maybe they're in an occasional TechCrunch article or on a, a panel. Um, and so what I think will happen is that that fragmentation will continue in part because of supply, meaning the supply of capital, you'll have folks that want to break off and start their own new fund, but also because of demand. I think in every industry, we're seeing a, a bit of a personalization happen, um, whether that's Netflix, and now I can get a comedy special that is for my exact demographic, um, or in CBG, uh, consumer packaged goods. In the case of tech VC funding, maybe the, you know, sequoias of the world should exist because that brand name is so great. How many are there that meet that need as opposed to, you know, it's a tech VC firm that cares a lot about network, right? And building the network around you. Or it's a tech VC firm that just focuses on a particular geography. Thanks for the plug, by the way. No, for sure. No, I mean, I mean <laughs> yeah. it. I mean, I'm on this for a reason. I have a lot of respect for you guys. But the point is like, it's it's a demand pull in that case where the consumer, in this case, the entrepreneur, um, wants a product that meets their unique needs. Yeah, I think we we'll see a lot of spe- sector-specific VCs. Exactly. Right? The way yeah. Forerunner is establishing. Yep. yep, exactly. And so Forerunner right now, I think, wins the deal against, candidly, every single big brand name tech VC fund, like, which is kind of amazing to say. If you think about what she's done over the past 10 years, she's amazing, by the way. I think if there's a if there's a jump ball in a DTC company, she wins it over Sequoia. And candidly, she should. I I have a tremendous amount of respect for both firms, but one has just focused on that industry, built an ecosystem just on that industry. Um, And I I see that continuing. Totally. How do you think the LP ecosystem evolves? You've you've talked in the past about LPs being a bit too conservative. This is the alternative asset category. How do you think that ecosystem changes? So when I've talked about it in the past in terms of LPs being conservative, 
this might sound a bit hypocritical um, or contradictory on the on the on the podcast, but for them, tech venture investing is pretty run of the mill right now for most most VCs that we talk to, or sorry, most uh, LPs we talk to rather recognize that the public markets are becoming more and more efficient, um, less attractive. Companies are going public later. They want access to private markets. Then they start getting kind of scratching the surface and, okay, well, if I want to expand my allocation to privates, what does that mean? It's much easier for them to go to their boss or their investment committee and pitch another tech VC firm than it is something totally out there, totally new, totally different. And it's because there's every one of their colleagues has an investment in a tech VC firm. It's because there's 750 tech VC firms out there, right? There's just like an ecosystem that exists. You will not get fired for investing into uh, an asset class where every one of your colleagues is also an investor. What I think is is challenging um, is when there is a new asset class. Um, so we're starting to raise, you know, a systematic venture fund in consumer. There's nothing like that that's been done before. And so what will that mean? I don't, I think a lot of LPs will look at that and say, gosh, I'll wait till fund two. I'll wait till, th- you know, the other endowment across the street has done it. Um, and then, you know, it'll be yeah. easier for me to go to my investment committee. So and do who it. will invest in it? Family offices? No, it will be institutional investors and there'll be some family offices, I'm sure, but it'll be endowments, pensions and um, insurance companies, um, et cetera. But it is a harder road when product is, is particularly unique because although all LPs say they want uniqueness, very few have the kind of courage and conviction willing to do it. Totally. Let's talk about circle up. What does it look like at scale? What does it look like to achieve your mission? What's the biggest version of the company circle could be? So we want to help thousands of entrepreneurs to achieve their dreams. And as part of that, we think that there's a couple different steps along the way. The first step is raising our own funds. So we have equity and credit funds that work with these emerging CPG brands, kind of one to $15 million in revenue growing quickly. We want to fuel thousands of them to help them be successful. Along the way, Helio continues to develop. And at a certain point, when we think it's ready, we want to license it out to other other groups. That might be large CPG companies interested in using it to find companies to acquire. It might be large retailers. Large retailers who say, you know, we need to optimize our um, assortment. It might be other venture firms who want to get into consumer. We can talk about that and why that might be a conflict or not. But we we see an opportunity to bring Helio to others in a way that is still consistent with our mission. The funds that we're building now, we want to own a piece of the 1,000, 2,000 most interesting companies in the consumer. You know, it's it's a it's a funny place to to be in this city because it's a city that uh, again you know kind of focuses a lot on tech and looks at consumer as a bit of a niche industry even though it's three times the size. So you've got an industry that's three times the size. There aren't ten investors that will invest into companies with less than ten million in revenue. There aren't ten that, that do that reliably. And some people we talk to would say, "Well, is the market really big enough?" And I'm kind of scratching my head there, saying, "Well, gosh." Market's three times the size. There's 750 venture firms in tech. Why are there not? Why is there not room for for a couple here in in consumer? If we're able to fuel the thousand, two thousand most interesting companies in consumer at this stage, those companies grow up. The next stage after us 
is pretty robust. There's about $80 billion in consumer private equity and about $70 billion in consumer-focused credit each year. And that uh, AUM, rather, we think gets to be pretty darn attractive if we have a piece of the 1,000 or 2,000 most interesting companies, meaning as they grow up into that, why do we hand them off to the multi-billion dollar fund down the street? Why don't we just do those deals ourselves? It's interesting to go back to your roots as a marketplace AngelList is doing something different, but has some similar themes to it. Should AngelList also say, you know what? Let's just be a billion dollar fund. We have all this data. Let's, let's just invest directly in these companies instead of. Well, they had thought about it. Um, so they had, they had, uh, tried to raise. I mean, there's a, there's an interesting article actually three, four years ago. It starts off with, um, the phone of the founders of AngelList being at a restaurant talking to LPs um, about raising a fund. So they tried to raise it. The fund ended up not working. I think because they, I think, I don't know this for sure, Eric, but I think it's because they didn't find enough signal in, um, in the data. I could be wrong about that. I think they, they said that they closed on 400 and they ended up deploying about 30 or so, um, and then kind of shut it, shut it down. So maybe the answer is maybe. I, I guess you just have to ask yourself, like, is there enough of a problem in tech to, to, to be solved? Right. So, the problem you guys are solving, I think, is is particularly uh, specific and unique. Is there another room for a broad platform to help tech entrepreneurs in every category, all geographies, et cetera? I call that Sequoia or, or Benchmark, et cetera. Um, I don't know if there's room for another. It's not completely obvious to me, unless you've got another unique angle. So SoftBank's Vision Fund, that's a unique angle, right? Like regardless of what we think about, it's a $100 billion fund. Like now they're coming in with a big war chest. Um, if it's just another couple hundred million dollar fund trying to do everything in tech, I, I don't know why they would win. That's a good point. I, th- I think they'd have to pick a specific theme. I think what is interesting is that what's, or what's unique is that they own product on an AngelList. Mm-hmm. And if you can get distribution and have an unfair advantage in hiring, that's really interesting. It is. It is. And so if if they can do that in a way that doesn't degrade the product itself, exactly. right? So do I still use, I don't, we don't use it, but it, like if we were to use AngelList uh, Talent Hunt, like, and we knew that their companies had a first draft on all the talent. I don't know. I'm not sure that I'd get super excited to pay for that product, um, but perhaps. Right, it's a good point. And speaking of first draft on, on people, one of the reasons you've you've talked in previous podcasts about why crowdfunding is tough is yeah. because uh, historically and even today, the best firms get a get a first pass because of how complicated the regulation is. People aren't going to market first. You know, you've newcomers like Republic who are trying, which I'm an advisor of, trying to do, to make it easier. But what are your thoughts on how crowdfunding evolves or, or doesn't evolve in the future? I don't think it does. You know, it's funny. I actually wrote a, a, a tweet storm about this. That I never put out live uh, in parks. I couldn't figure out a way to do it without criticizing any specific platform. So let's differentiate. There's a couple of different forms of crowdfunding. So rewards crowdfunding, Kickstarter, the best example. Um, donation-based crowdfunding, so GoFundMe. Maybe you might consider some of the lending platforms, maybe your crowdfunding. And then there's equity crowdfunding. I don't think equity crowdfunding works, full stop. I think, uh, and I think it's taken the ecosystem, you know, five, seven years to figure that out. Um, I think the biggest issue is actually, adverse selection is one, but I think the biggest issue is actually what I call the feedback loop. Meaning in all those other examples, when you invest or give to a company, you get an immediate feedback loop. You get some form of positivity back. So lending, you get money back and call it in 90 days or whatever the term loan is or the, the term of the loan. Um, in the case of rewards, you have the psychic benefits, um, which we can laugh about or not, but it's 
you know, billions of dollars have gone into it. Psychic benefits of supporting an entrepreneur and saying, I was one of the first, and then hopefully eventually getting a watch back or whatever that product is. In the case of equity, you give to a for-profit company, you know, you invest and you hope you will see benefits back in five to seven years. That's a really hard bet for retail investors to make. Um, they might make it once. I don't see them making it 15 times, which in that industry, as you guys know, you got to do. If you only invest in one or two companies, you're going to get slaughtered. Um, so I think the feedback loop is a really important component that I don't think the industry is going to be able to solve in, in the next several years. Um, I think adverse selection is a really big one. The ability to understand the product. So think about like most of the platforms focus on tech companies. First of all, what's the tech company that would go to a online platform instead of reaching out to Village? Okay, so now Village passed on them. And now it goes onto the online platform. Okay, well, that gives me some pause. But then the amount of people that can understand some of these companies. I mean, I, I, I saw like you know, on one, it was a robotics company. Um, on another, it was a, a securities business. Right. I, I think the hope was for companies like Reddit or Product Hunt or Quora or yep. you know, Wikipedia. I don't know if it was a for-profit company where the wide user community driven, if you give them you know, economic alignment, would they participate more? I think that's the, the dream. I'm skeptical. Yeah. Um, yeah, I just, I haven't, I haven't seen it. Marketplaces tend to work really well when there's supply yeah. and it's really hard to get quality supply. Right. Do you suspect that anyone will be able to become an investor in the future? Like will a credit investor or will it be the same more or less? So what you're asking basically uncredited investors being able to invest in private companies. Do I think that that'll grow? Yes. No, I don't. I don't think it'll grow because I think so few people care to make it happen. To be frank, the people that were pushing that along were basically the platforms themselves who were trying to make money. There weren't a lot of unaccredited investors. I mean, you saw some stories about, you know, an example here and there, but it wasn't like a, a mass uprise, which, you know, when you think about major legislative change, it typically is because there's a groundswell of support for something, not because there's five platforms that want to make money off the thing. By the way, five startups, not exactly $5 billion companies. So I, I struggle to believe that that's going to grow much. I think it had its chance. It didn't work, full stop. And I don't know, I don't think that there's going to be much support for it to come back, especially because people are going to be pointing at the returns to a lot of these kind of tech VC platforms and saying, okay, who actually made money there? You know, yes, I get one company, Instacart raised money on that one platform. What about the 350 other deals that they did? What are the average returns? And that doesn't look good. Yep. And to that end, this is a bit of a, a, a crazy futuristic question. I don't know if you follow Upstart at all. You try to do basically a Kickstarter for people where you, you'd say, hey, um, you know, I want to go to college or I want to go to this dev boot camp instead of taking a loan out. Can someone invest in me for you know percent of my future revenues if I make over a certain amount similar to what Make School or Lambda School are, are doing? Uh, your quick take on do you envision that being a big part of the future or similarly, no, people don't care enough to because a lot of regulation that has to. I think, yeah, I mean, the the regulatory issues – in that industry, meaning just finance and securities more broadly, go underappreciated in Silicon Valley, to be to be frank. People look at products like Uber, companies like Uber, and say, well, they were able to get through the regulations and everyone kind of doubted their regulations. The regulatory issues in the securities business are jail. <laughs> yeah. It's not, you know, I'm running a taxi company. It's, it's, it's dramatically different. It is the second most heavily regulated industry in the world behind healthcare. That's, there's just a lot of friction that comes with that, right? And so 
do I think more broadly that there will be more products that will meet consumers' needs? Yes, absolutely. But I think that there's a lot of friction along the way because of those regulatory issues. So in the case of Upstart, that vision may be the right one, or maybe it's a different incarnation of it several years from now. I'm not sure. But I, I think what a lot of investors and entrepreneurs miss in Silicon Valley is just how tight the regulations are. I mean, if you kind of rewind the clock, uh, I think it's 12, 13 years now, Prosper started first before Lending Club. Prosper had won. Um, the, the Delta, if you look at kind of um, the GMV that Prosper had, was pretty dramatic. They, they had won the market and then they got shut down. They got shut down for a year because of they had been kind of skirting some regulations. Got back on their feet and, and now they're trying to make it work, but they hadn't won. Lending Club then was able to leapfrog them and took a poll position, went public. Now, ultimately, then they had other regulatory issues after going public. But like, that's a pretty good example. In, in this industry, move fast and break things is a really, really dangerous strategy that, in my opinion, is almost certainly going to catch up with you. And, and just to be clear, I'm absolutely not saying that Upstart is doing anything other than what they should be doing, right? I don't have a perspective on Upstart. I'm more just commenting on the landscape and the evolution as a whole. We will see less innovation I think in that industry than we will in others because of the regulatory friction. I don't think that that's a bad thing given the importance, just as I don't think it's a bad thing that regulations exist in healthcare. But I think that that is what limits um, innovation more so than some other categories. Totally. Let's get back to, to consumer. How should venture think about consumer then in, in your view? What are the opportunities, challenges? How should different firms think about it? How should new firms start there? What, what are your thoughts? So <laughs> this is going to sound probably very self-serving, but it's genuinely what I think. I'm not sure that they should be thinking about it. Um, and so let me kind of give some detail on why. I'm not sure that the portfolio approach that VCs have today works if you dabble in consumer. If you are dedicated to consumer, I think it works effect really effectively. So he here's the bridge. In consumer, in every industry, large brands are losing market share to small brands. Um, we call that the personalization of the consumer. If you kind of continue that trend, and that's just in the data, that's not a hypothesis. If you now hypothesize what that'll look like over the next 10 or 15 years, we think that the winners are smaller. 10 years ago, Kind Bar, or 15 years ago, Kind Bar started. Now it's a four or $5 billion company. Uh, Chobani, a multi-billion dollar company. I don't think that there will be another Kind Bar, another Chobani. I think the winners of tomorrow will tap out at 500 million instead of 2 billion because consumers continue to fragment. If that's right, and that's just a hypothesis, if that's right, the exits are a lot smaller. If the exits are a lot smaller, I think it's really hard for a tech VC firm to write a $50 million check and expect a strong return. I mean, you know, you, you, there's examples, Juicero, um, a personal care company that's just happened to, uh, there's a, a mayonnaise company that raised a lot of money. When you raise $100 million for a consumer company, a CPG company, you have to just expect such a massive growth in the business that I don't think market dynamics can support over the next 10 years. So if you know Eric wanted to start Village Global focused on consumer, I think that works really well. But most VC firms today are set out to say, okay, I'm going to, you know, if I do one or two consumer deals, can I put that into my portfolio? No, unless you're okay with that company exiting at 250 million. And if you're only going to invest 3 million and have it exit 250 million, I think that works really well. VC firms push their partners to invest, you know, 
20, 30, 50 million dollars, that's hard to do in just a couple of consumer deals and have them turn out well. Yeah. So let's say another version of uh, Kristen Green is starting a different uh, fund that's taking the forerunner dedicated approach, but to a different area of, of consumer. Where within consumer would you recommend that they, they go or what would their, what should their thesis be or what's, what's most exciting? Yeah. So I think, I think the, the, wonderful thing about Forerunner is that they are focused on this, right? So if they were just dabbling in this um, and just doing a couple deals here or there, I think it's hard, again, to make make that portfolio work in part because the checks that you get used to writing, a pressure to writing from the rest of your partners tend to not make sense to consumer. If another VC firm was starting out you know, and, fo- and wanted to focus on consumer, I'll be frank, I wouldn't say focus on one category. I think you can go after the whole thing. I mean, you've got a you've got a fifteen trillion dollar industry in consumer and retail. There's holes in every part of it. So if you have a particular angle, personal care, pet products, food, beverage, and Kirsten's, it's it's she tends to lean towards uh, D to C. That's great, but I don't think that there has to be. We're dealing with industries here. Let's take personal care as an example. Depending upon how you want to define it, it's somewhere between a fifty and a hundred billion dollar industry that people in the city think is niche. Okay, could we back twenty five companies in a fifty billion dollar industry? Probably. I don't think you need to specify though if if you don't want to. Yeah. So Keith Raboy has this general framework, I think, which in terms of his criteria, which I think is you know in areas where they have low NPS, high fragmentation, and you can vertically integrate. Do you have a Ryan Caldbeck consumer version of of a framework that oh, there's holes everywhere, but this is a sort of generalist framework we apply to these different? Yeah, yeah. First, consumables, not durables. And there are absolutely examples against everything that I'm about to say, but consumables, not durables. Consumables are products where the consumer needs to buy it repeatedly. In almost every industry on earth, a, a pretty phenomenal pattern is that Acquiring a new customer tends to cost about seven times as much as keeping keeping an existing customer. So if you take that knowledge and you apply it to the consumer space, you want to be in food, not in luggage, typically. And uh, so one is consumables versus uh, durables. Two is product uniqueness, um, a product that has a unique value proposition that is aligned with uh, what the consumer needs. You know, what does that mean? That means a uh, understanding what the consumer's purchase criteria are and then being able to deliver that with a unique product. If I come out with a copycat of vitamin water, there's no reason for that product to exist anymore. When vitamin water first started, there was a huge reason for that to exist. Third is uh, brand strength. So brand is probably the most important barrier to entry in, in the consumer space. A brand that really resonates with the consumer, a brand that they can connect to in an authentic way. And then fourth is distribution, breadth and quality. Um, so I think a lot of uh, people in this city tend to focus way too much on products that are just sold online. I think D2C is a channel, not the channel. It is an amazing channel to iterate on. It is a horrible channel to scale a product on. And you know you can just look at the amount of money that every D2C company raises to get a sense that like it is less efficient than offline. So what do I mean? What do I mean by distribution? Ideally, it's a company or product that has been able to figure out omni-channel, selling both online and offline in a successful way. Right. And consumer has had incumbents that have been around, you know, 100 plus years, right? The next 10, 20 years, is there, what happens? Is it a big disruption? And if so, why? They're getting slaughtered. They're absolutely getting slaughtered. 
And what's it's, different this time? It started with consumers demanding products that meet their unique needs, um, which effectively started with millennials, but quickly spread to other all, all demographics. You know, maybe the the two of us used to eat the same breakfast cereal. Now you have a protein bar, and I've got a bagel, whatever it is. But we have different ways to express what we want. Problem for large consumer is that large consumer doesn't have a pipeline of innovation to meet those needs. So large consumer typically spends about one and a half percent of sales in R and D. For comparison, tech companies spend about thirteen to fifteen percent of sales in R and D. So they don't have products to meet their unique needs. They've been spending their money on marketing, marketing like the Super Bowl. That's where they're spending the money. Think about Bud Light. Bud Light's the same damn product for how many decades now, effectively? I mean, maybe they can play around with saying that they don't use not, you know, GMO syrup or whatever, but like it doesn't matter. It's the same product. What would be a unique product? I don't know. It, it, maybe this is an insane proposition, but Bud Light that doesn't cause hangovers, yeah. right? Like something different. So we what what you can see in the data is that they're not meeting the needs of the consumers because they don't have a pipeline of innovation. The small brands are the ones that are meeting those needs. Brands with 1 to 15 million in revenue that are growing quickly and that's why they're eating market share in every single category in consumer. So what's going to happen? The large brands will continue to lose market share. I think some will get taken private by private equity firms that will just continue to put a lot of leverage on it and ride the wave down. You can make money doing that as a private equity firm. It's sad for the company, but you can make money doing that. Others will invest into uh, innovation externally. So CPG is becoming big pharma where they're outsourcing innovation. They're buying up these companies. The M&A marketing consumer retail last year was $300 billion. So they're buying that. I think a, a third option that um, either some of the existing large CPG companies will take on or other third parties will be creating hold codes of a lot of brands. And so what I mean is instead of looking for one $5 billion brand, it'll be buying uh, 10 $500 million brands, putting them together, seeing if we can generate... Some, about, some amount of network effects between the brands and trying to ride this disruption in that way. The challenge there is that most of the large companies are not set up to be able to work with smaller brands like that. Their M&A team consistently is looking for, show me the next billion dollar thing. So that's the difference. I want to segue into something that you also write a lot about, by the way, everyone should follow Ryan Callback on Twitter if you aren't already. And, uh, and that's mental health. Why is it important to you to, to talk about mental health? And what do you think we're, we're not having a conversation enough about? So I, I have, in my journey as an entrepreneur, struggled a lot with it. it. It is a brutally difficult job to be a founder and CEO. It's also a job that I feel lucky to have. I recognize that I'm incredibly privileged to live in Silicon Valley in 2019 and be a founder and CEO. I am fully cognizant of that. It does not change that I haven't had three good nights of sleep in seven years. It doesn't change that like I wake up in absolute terror a couple times a week for seven years. And by the way, that can be because we just had our best day ever, or it can be because we just had our worst day ever. It doesn't change. And I think that um, at least for me, those challenges get as exacerbated when I talk to most other either entrepreneurs or investors who not always, but oftentimes, you know, put on a little bit of an air about like, yeah, we're, we're crushing it. Everything's great. And it, it kind of 
has at times led me to feel more lonely, especially early on before I recognized that that was just complete BS. And it's also been a godsend when I've been able to find usually entrepreneurs, not as often investors, but usually entrepreneurs who are open to saying, yeah, just today was horrible. Like, I don't know how we're going to get through this. The the book about entrepreneurship that I like the most is uh, Ben Horowitz, Hard Thing About Hard Things, in part because he just seemed real, like about the struggles. And I love hearing about uh, other entrepreneurs and their journeys. And in particular, though, like when it's when they can talk about the things that don't go well and just be honest about that. Yeah. So what was one of the worst moments for you and how did you get through it? So um, when I think about the worst moments for us, um, what comes to mind for me is candidly not trying to think of some, it's trying to narrow it down. Um, there's there's hard things every single week. Um, there really are. Um, and I also have to put on a lens of, okay, what what is for public consumption, right? Um, so, you know, I can talk about a struggle with an investor that has been just brutal, absolutely brutal. I can talk about org dynamics. I can talk about performance in certain periods of our history. Um, I would say though that the single worst time was when we pivoted away from the marketplace and we had several team members that we had to lay off. And it was as hard of a time for me professionally in my life as I've ever had. These were people that just were really, really talented, really smart, worked really hard. And I just felt like I, I completely let them down. I, I didn't put them in a position to succeed. I didn't help build a product that they could sell. And it just just wasn't working. And look, I, I don't know if I have any magic um, bolts on how I got through it, but I'll tell you what we did, which was we talked with them individually, tried to give them support to find their next thing, tried to comfort them, made it clear to them and their future employers that it had nothing to do with their performance and that it was 100% ultimately my failure. But I also stood in front of the, the company and talked with them for a long time about what happened. I cried in front of the company. And um, I think that, that the vulnerability was, was genuine. It was a horrible time in my life. And I think it helped the rest of the company understand like that we take their lives, their careers very seriously. And when it doesn't work, that's a really sad moment for us. And it's not something that we just brush aside lightly. I tried also to talk to other entrepreneurs. It was a hard thing to find other entrepreneurs that were open to talking. And that that was another thing that kind of led me to want to talk about this externally because I knew entrepreneurs that had gone through it, but they weren't able, willing to talk about it. And that was, that was difficult for me. Right. The tension is they don't want it to get out, right? That's exactly right. Yeah. Exactly right. And to be frank with you, I think this might be the first time we've, we're ever talking about it on this podcast. Wow. Um, it was th- three years ago, but it was a, uh, a really, really difficult time. Yeah. And so what do you want other entrepreneurs to know who may be going through the, who likely are going through the same highs and brutal, brutal lows? You're not alone. You're absolutely not alone. And, and, you know, Try to find a start with one person, maybe two, and just keep trying to build up a, a group of people of entrepreneurs, regardless of their success level, that are open to talking about it. My wife is uh, Simo Coursera, um, the education company. Um, she's brilliant, much smarter than I am. It's also hard sometimes to come home and want to talk about it. And I think just sometimes it's really helpful to have coffee with another entrepreneur. 
And so whether you are a seed stage um, in our seed round, we got passed over by 70 VC firms or you're a series D company. I think the challenges are incredibly real and you're not alone. I've talked to billion dollar founders that same that sound the exact same as the first time entrepreneur that is two weeks into the journey. Um, and just in terms of their fear and everything else, the imposter syndrome, the the inability to sleep, there's the constant soul crushing fear. And so I think talking to other people, at least for me, has been helpful. And so I, I I'm not big on advice, but if someone asked me like what what I would do, it'd be it'd be that. Yeah. And you you could be not only will you feel less alone, but it's also an you can also build incredibly strong friendships that way. I think so. Yeah. yeah. And if you think about the friendships, I think the best friendships, best relationships are often built upon vulnerability, the willingness to be authentically and appropriately vulnerable. And when you're talking about the struggles of your company with someone that you trust and, and someone that can also be vulnerable back to you, I think that is the foundation for a really powerful friendship and relationship. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, it's a grind being a founder, but it's a grind working at startups. It's a, uh, lot, lots of people are going through the grind. How do you think of mental health outside of founders and, and peer-to-peer among you know, founder to founder? There's been, I think, an exciting amount of attention. I wish there was more, but an exciting amount of attention the past year or so on mental health um, for founders. I think the whole ecosystem needs help. I think the venture capital firms, I think the employees, I think every part of the ecosystem needs a lot of health, needs a lot of help. We're sitting in a WeWork right now. WeWork could take a really powerful approach to mental health. Think about all the things they can do with their network and their community. I would get excited to see them lean in on it. When I talk with investors about mental health, when I talk to team members, either at Circle Up or outside of Circle Up, about mental health, my impression, and look, I could be wildly wrong, but my impression is that they're happy to talk about it when I am the one talking about vulnerability and my struggles. I don't often hear an investor or a marketing person or salesperson say, you know what, Like, I'm really scared too. I'm scared that salesperson's better than I am. I'm scared that I'm going up against this VC firm and they're just smarter or better or whatever. And I think that's a shame. I, I think that that's, it's hard for me to believe that, you know, 90% of the VC firms that I talk to don't have some fear about raising their next fund. Yeah. Why won't they talk about it? Or well, they, they don't like their partners. or Exactly. They, yeah. yeah. They're scared they're going to get fired. Exactly. Or, and so I understand intellectually why they would be scared to say that to the entrepreneur. Yeah. Well, they don't want to take money from someone that's yeah. you know, dysfunctional or not going to be able to the money for the next fund, et cetera. Well, that's the exact same reason why the entrepreneur doesn't want to talk to to the VC about mental health, right? They surely don't want to back the the founder who says that they can't sleep at night and that they're afraid. What VC firm would ever want to back someone that says they're afraid? Or they're, they're depressed. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally. That's so ingrained in our ecosystem. I, I wish that there was more attention paid to that as well. And I love the attention paid to founder mental health. I hope that there is more. This is a ecosystem where the expression fake it till you make it has become so commonplace. It's cliche. What is the impact of an expression like that on mental health? It is almost by definition, not being vulnerable, right? And and that's, a I think, a really hard place to live a healthy thriving life. Right. And it's like, we're only okay with people being vulnerable once they're successful. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Like, Look, let's call a spade a spade. I, I am sitting here with you talking about a pivot that we made three years ago. If you had had me on a podcast three years ago, I don't know that I would have had the courage to say that. That'd been really, really difficult. 
and not to say that like the whole story has been written on Circle Up, but like it's it's really hard to do it in the moment, which is a shame. Yeah. So in the next year, if you know we're sitting here, you're back on the podcast. What progress would you like us to make in uh, mental health? What what can people really do, and 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 what would what outcomes might you like to see? So I'd love to see more. I'd love to see different parts of the ecosystem speak out on this topic and speak out about their own experiences. It is the the VC who's willing to talk about their own struggles publicly. I don't know if it's going to happen, but that's what I would love. It's more founders talking about it. It's team members. I just read a blog on Medium from Ashley Mayer, communications marketing woman, talking about some struggles that, that she's had, um, some some lessons she's had in Silicon Valley. I loved it. I wish that there was so much more of that. So my hope is over the next year, we're seeing more people talk out publicly about this topic. Yeah. Well, I hope to do uh, one or maybe a few episodes with with me and others, uh, and maybe you again, uh, talking about it. Ryan, thank you so much for coming to the podcast. Thank you. Amazing episode. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst. 